Okay, the question today is, does Jesus love you? What do you think? Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Um, what I'm talking about is, does Jesus love you? And there is a difference between the generic love that God has for all people. But what I'm looking at is, does Jesus love you as a disciple? Because if God has called you, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of you being called to become disciples of Christ. So does Jesus love you as a disciple? And what we're going to find out is there's a big difference between the generic love that God has for all people and you, the called, the elect, being loved as a disciple. Again, I'm not talking about a superficial concept of, like I said, Jesus loves me, this I know, the little childhood thing that you learn. Of course, Jesus loves all people. Christ died for all people. God loves all people. But does God... But does Jesus love you as a disciple? And what exactly does that mean to be loved as a disciple? In John 13, verse 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus loved his disciples. But we need to understand what that love meant on a daily basis being a disciple of Christ as they walked with Jesus, as they ate with Jesus, as they slept with Jesus, as they interacted with Jesus for three and a half years in his ministry. What exactly did that mean to be a disciple and to be loved by Jesus? And we're also told that we love one another as Christ has loved us. <clears throat> now, if you think this kind of love doesn't have a price, you're not paying attention. Jesus said, you are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. There's the price. <laughs> if you do whatsoever I command you. So the question is, how does Jesus get us to do the things he wants us to do? How does Christ get us to do the things that he wants us to do? Now, I imagine if we could take a snapshot picture or a movie clip of Christ interacting with his disciples, the way he interacted with his disciples, the correction, the rebuke, the instruction that went on constantly, that the most common expression among the disciples would be, Jesus, where's the love? What kind of love is this? You call this love? That would probably be the most common expression. Christ, where's the love? Now let's look at a little example of this. Something that Christ begins to rebuke and correct his disciples because of just one issue here. There were many issues. But in Mark 16, verse 9, Mark 16, verse 9, the story, I'll set the story up. Now, when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he cast seven devils. And she went and told them that that had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they heard that, he was alive and had been seen of her, did not believe. And she said, look, I've seen Jesus. He's alive. They didn't believe. You know, it's, let's admit it. It's easy to stay in a stagnant state of unbelief. 
you would rather not believe when believing would serve you better. You ever been there? You know, it's like, you know, if I believed, I'd get more out of this. But instead, I choose not to believe. I'm not going to believe that you saw him alive. After that, he appeared in another form unto the two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it unto the residue, neither believed they th them. They didn't believe. In other words, I'm not going to believe. I would rather live in my hopeless misery. I would rather grieve, woe is me, there's no hope, or whatever. A heart that refuses to believe the best. A heart that refuses to believe the best. Now notice Mark 16, verse 14. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. Now the word upbraided, one minister said what he gave them is a good old-fashioned chewing out. He just ripped them to bits and pieces, upbraided them for their unbelief. Now, if you'd have been there, severely corrected for your unbelief, you know, you, you might say, well, Jesus, where's the love? Where's the love? I'm not, you know, I'm, you know this is sort of painful. This is embarrassing. This is, maybe their faces were beat red as he corrected them. Correction was a, lay, a way of life for the disciples. Now, if you are a disciple of Christ Jesus, continuous correction from God becomes a way of life through God's Spirit that He works through us. And you will, I, at least, I believe, from time to time, question God's love for you because it's a way of life, correction. You will, on occasion, question, huh, God, do you really love me? You know, is, is it, you know, because I don't quite understand, you know, this, this correction, this thing I'm going through, you will question that. You see, God's love for us, love is when I want what is best for you. I want what is best for you. And I don't care so much how you feel. I don't care so much about your emotions. I don't care so much about your comfort, even some temporary pain that you'll get through in time. Even the state of confusion that you're in, that's not so much what I care about. I will get the results that I want from you. That's what love is. What love is, I want what is best for you. And often through this process, we question, God, where's the love? I'm not seeing it. I'm being corrected again. I'm being rebuked again. Again, if we could see a movie clip of the disciples' interaction with Jesus as they walked about, as they ate meals with him, as they you know, slept on the, bar on the ground, whatever. The correction, the rebuke, the discipline was a way of life for these men. Now I want to look at some stories about some of these interactions that, that the disciples had of this kind of correction that went on constantly with his disciples. One of the stories is that, and you don't have to turn to these, this is Matthew 24 and verse 1. As Jesus went out and departed from the temple, the disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. Now they were like, I guess, country boys who had been to the city for the first time. 
And they're, you know, look, look at this, Jesus. <laughs> Aren't you impressed? They were impressed. Look at the temple. And Jesus said to them, you see all these things? Verily I say unto you, verily I say unto you there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus was not that impressed. I used to have a car I was impressed with. You know, I would take pictures of it. I'd get on the roof and take pictures down, you know, the top of it. You know, Jesus would come along and say, it's a bunch of nuts and bolts and plastic and fiberglass. I'm not that impressed with. You know, the things that we're impressed with, you know, we might present them to Jesus and it's, <laughs> so, you know, I'm just saying that here they there are, about, excited about the temple, and they're probably thinking, well, we can't get anything right. We can't even compliment the temple. And we're being corrected. We can't get anything right. I'm going to just shut my mouth. I'm not going to say anything anymore. You know, enough. Where's the love, Jesus? Where's the love? Another story, Matthew 24 and verse 3. Again, you don't have to turn that. But as they sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, what shall these things be and what shall be the sign of your coming and the end of the world? They wanted to know. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no man deceive you. They didn't ask about being deceived. <laughs> they said, Lord, we want to know. It'd be like you coming to me and saying, No, I got a question about the end. How do you think prophecy will fold out? I mean, how do you think the end time will come all about? And I look at you and I say, There's a high probability you're going to be deceived. You know, you'd probably spin around and say, well, What do you mean? I'm not, gonna, I'm not deceived. You know, you'd probably be offended by that. You know, they didn't ask about being deceived. He just, you know, if you had one ounce of spiritual pride with Jesus, he would snuff it out in a heartbeat. I mean, if, if, if there's any type of pretense, any type of religious facade, Christ would just get right to the chase. And he'd, if you had any spiritual pride, he would snuff it out. Another story, John 14 and verse 8. Philip, now I think the disciples put... Philip up to this one. Uh, John 14, verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. You know, they go, yeah, you, you ask him that stupid question. You know, you <laughs> <laughs> and Jesus said, Philip. You know, here Christ actually says the name. He's singling out the ind individual. Have I been so long time with you and you have not known me? Philip, you're ignorant. How do you think that went over? Or were they, yeah, that's good. I like that. He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how do you say, show us the Father? That's a dumb question that you're asking. You've been with me all this time. Correction, rebuke, discipline, a constant way of life with the disciples. Does Jesus love you as a disciple? Another story. Jesus telling his disciples, he said, look, I'm going to be killed and three days rise again. And Peter, you know, of course, talking about Peter. But I mean, Peter really, he, was, he got himself into all kinds of trouble. Peter began to rebuke him and, and turned about and said, looking on, you know, said, this is not going to happen to you, Lord. Jesus, uh, Peter rebukes Jesus. But when he had turned about, this is Mark 8 and verse 33, but when he turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, get 
thee behind me, Satan, for you savor not the things that be of God, but the things that be of man. Man, you talk about some correction there. Here Jesus is no longer even talking to Peter the man. He's talking to the spirit that is, that is motivating Peter to, to suggest this. Peter's ego got in the way. You know, this, we're, we're not going to let this happen to you, Lord. We tough Rambo men are not going to allow you to be crucified. And so Jesus rebuked, you know, we will never know how many times we are in a bad spirit. And if Jesus was with us, he would say, you know, he would rebuke the spirit that is motivating that bad attitude that we have. We get in bad attitudes a lot. I do. I really do. I've been in one. Tracy could probably tell you, I've been in one for the last week about the church, about the work of the church, about the ministry, about the whole nine yards of every, everything that I do. I've been in a bad attitude. And, and probably Christ would come along and say, you know, get behind me. <laughs> say, you know, that, that you're being motivated by a rotten spirit there. <clears throat> Here's another story. John 13, verse 8. Jesus, Peter said, you know, they were going through the foot washing. Jesus came to Peter. Peter said, you're not going to wash my feet. Ain't no way. <laughs> Jesus said, if I, if I wash thee not, you don't have any part with me. You know, it's, it's my way or the highway. It's what Jesus is saying. You know? And we'll never know how close Peter came to maybe spinning on his heel and saying, that's it. I'm, 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 I'm out of here. I'm not tolerating this. And you know, Jesus would have let him walk. Let him walk. Jesus wouldn't say, oh, Peter, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I offended you, you know. I see how offended you, know. You can't handle correction. Jesus would have let him walk. No, it's my way or the highway. You know, Cord talked, talked about the story. Oh, oh, you of little faith. And here's a man that just walked on the water. But he began to drown. You know, he began to sink. You know, and the correction is, you don't have faith, Peter. You don't have any faith. You know, I wonder how they, how, how do you think they handled it? Day in, day out. Correction, rebuke, instruction. You know, by the end of that three and a half years, I, I can only imagine what those men were like. I mean, I, I think they eventually got used to it. They just knew, if I'm going to be in a relationship with Christ, I had better get used to this. This is how it's going to be for me. What I'm saying is, if you're a disciple, you know, it's, it's, how it's, it's, it's how it is with you, through the Spirit. Does Jesus love you? Does Jesus love you as a disciple? You know, I think what most people want is a casual relationship with God. A casual, you know, one where maybe they, as Greg mentioned in one sermon, you, know, they, you, know, you give Jesus a high five. You and me, Lord. They want a casual relationship. You know, Jesus is like, a, you know, most religious people, Jesus is like a spare tire in their car. You only use it when you need it. When your tire goes flat, it goes flat about what? Once every eight years, your tire will go flat. I need Jesus now. Okay. Um, I don't know how many people are looking to be disciples. In Romans you can turn here if you want. Romans 8 and verse 35 talks about things 
You know, he talks about things, okay, what's going to separate us from the love of God? Have you ever noticed the list of things that is mentioned here? Look at this, Romans 8 and verse 35. It says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now we're talking about the love of Christ. But then notice what he starts listing. Tribulation. I don't want no tribulation. Distress. I don't want no distress. <laughs> Persecution. I don't want that either. Famine. I don't want that. Nakedness. I don't want that. Peril. Sword. I don't want any of that. None of it. Which one of these things do you want in your life? Goes on and says, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, how you read God's correction will determine your destiny, how you read that, whether you accept it or not, you know, the correction that comes. Now, how do you know if this thing that you're going through is God's correction or if it's just bad luck? How do you know? Because we sort of ask those questions from time, you know, what I'm going through, you know, is it just bad luck? I think the, the thing to keep in mind, I'll come back to this, but the character formation is what God is after. The transformation of the man or woman in the mirror. Character transformation is, is God's agenda to conform you into the image of Christ, to make you like Christ, so that when you're resurrected, you're going to be given, you're going to have the character that you've developed through the power of God's Spirit, but when you're resurrected, you're going to be given a spiritual body. I like that, this concept of a spiritual God is a spirit, and we're going to become like him. Spirit bodies, they travel at the speed of thought. I want to be in Hawaii right now. Boom, I'm there. Bullets go straight through a spirit being. You can't hurt them. They're immortal. You can't. Can you imagine what you could accomplish if you, if you had no fear? Cord talked about fear. No fear of death. No one could kill you. We would be bold, would we not? <laughs> we would write whatever is wrong. We would correct our government if you had no fear that no one could hurt you. Someone could blast away at you and you're just, you're, you're immortal, your spirit. Well, that's what God is and, and our destiny is to become children of God. Now, okay, character formation is what God is after and if it takes... Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, pearl, or sore. If it takes that to change you, God will use every one of those instruments if, it, if, if that's what it takes. But now let's ask the question, why would it take that? Because I don't like any of these things. They're all negative to me. Why would it take those things to change us? Answer, because you're hard-headed. You're stiff. It's hard to get a lesson through what God wants you to, you know, that's the reason. So the most beneficial, I figured this out, the most beneficial prayer I can pray is, God, help me to gracefully change. <laughs> help me to just do it easily, to go along with it, to quit resisting it. Help me to see 
my stiff-necked, rebellious heart. Give me power to change gracefully. That way I won't have to go through all these other stuff. You know, someone said, here's the thing. Change is easy. If I give you, if I say, Ronnie, here's three things you need to change about you. Ronnie could go to work on that and get it done in no time. Once I tell you what you need to change. Once you know, change is easy. The hard part in our relationship with God is knowing that you need to change. There's where the deception comes in. Simply knowing, because the heart is deceitful above all things. The heart, the deceitful heart will say, I'm okay just the way I am. Okay. I don't need to change. It's not changing that's difficult. It is realizing that you need to change. That's another powerful prayer. God, show me what I need to change. And boy, will he ever do that. He'll answer that prayer. But hold on to your seats. You know. It's probably not going to be pleasant. <clears throat> I made the mistake one time of saying, God, heal me body, mind, and spirit. And I, I, he, he began to work on me in a lot of different areas and, and, and is still working on me. And then I, I'm not that crazy about it. It's not an enjoyable thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's really not. It's, uh, it can be very unpleasant. Hebrews 12 and verse 6. If you think about what this is saying, Hebrews 12 and verse 6, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Notice that. He corrects and scourges. Do you know what scourging was? I mean, they say it was a cat of nine tails, which was a, a stick with leather, running, leather strips running out of the end of the handle with chunks of bone and metal and in the end of those little leather things and that's what you were whipped with, scourged. My point is, when God says he chastens and scourges every son, this is not pleasant. This is not, oh boy, I get to be scourged. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not pleasant. Teresa works at a daycare and she does not have the authority to whip their little AS, you know. <laughs> if she had the authority to whip their, you know what? Lives could be changed. The world could be changed because the parents are not doing it and neither are, you know, they don't have the authority to do it as a teacher. But I'm just saying, lives could be changed. But instead, they're not being changed. They're not being changed at all. Hebrews 12 and verse 7. If you endure chastening, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as a son. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if you be without chastisement, wherefore all are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. There are a lot of Christian bastards in the world that illegitimate sons is basically what it means. Illegitimate sons. Claiming the name, claiming to be Christians. You know, you got your religion, I can't get enough of church, six days a week, twice on Sunday. And yet, illegitimate sons. They have never learned how to accept 
God's correction. Never ask for it. Don't want it. Now I mentioned how do you know if this thing is you're going through is God's correction or just bad luck. You know, one minister told me, he said this, whatever you're going through, just consider, at least consider in the mind that it could be God's correction. You know, whatever, you know. I know we struggle with and we say, well, it's, and it can be just bad luck. But, you know, just consider that, you know, they used to make self-correcting typewriters, you know, where you go back and white out. You need to be a self-corrective person. Is, is the goal, you know, just, and in my life, there is no one that I think, you know, that criticizes or often condemns and, and looks at things at, from a corrective point of view than myself. I am, the, I am the hardest person on myself. I'm very hard on myself. Um, but I, I, I've learned to live with, it's not the most enjoyable thing, I'll tell you that. It's not fun to live like that. But, um, it's sort of how I've lived my life, you know, and, and I, I think the end results can be good. Now, I know I can hear someone say, wait a minute, the Bible says there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Well, no condemnation basically means that when you sin, the death penalty is no longer, if you have the Spirit of God, the death penalty, penalty does not hang over your head when you sin. No condemnation. Okay, but no condemnation is not a license to live the unexamined life. Who said the unexamined life is not worth li living? I forget who said that. But no condemnation does not mean that you live an unexamined life. Because love is, from God's perspective, I want what is best for you. I'm not so concerned about how you feel, your emotions, your comfort, your pain, your state of confusion. I will get the results that I want. And often when God says that, we respond by saying, God, where's the love? Where's the love? <clears throat> One more scripture I want to turn to in 1 John 4 and verse 6. First John 4 and verse 6. He says, we are of God, he that knoweth God hears us. He that is not of God hears not us. You know, that in itself is a pretty powerful statement, is it not? You ever wonder why people don't respond to you? And, well, that, that gives you a clue right there. Uh, he that knows God hears us. He that is not of God is not going to hear you. Hereby. Know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You know, I look at the spirit of God as a spirit of correction. I mean, that's part of the role of the spirit of God, spirit of correction. But you know, often we get sort of maybe hung up on, okay, I got the spirit of truth. And that's good to identify the spirit of truth in you. Equally important, you need to identify the spirit of error things in your life that God wants to correct. Spirit of truth, yeah, I got spirit of truth, but, but there's, you know, what is the error that I need to correct about myself? About, you know, what am I doing? And to, 
to realize that probably the most difficult thing for all of us is to realize that, hey, I, do, I need to change. Once, once God shows you what you need to change, change is easy. But it is in realizing, the hardest part is in realizing that I need to change. So, to close, I want to ask you, does Jesus love you? Does Jesus love you as a disciple?